Thank you. 
Christopher and let them know what a great job they've done. I'm so grateful. Marissa and Al and Darby, thanks for years and years leading music when you were sick of doing it. And I was just like, I need you to keep doing it. And uh, I really appreciate all of you. All of you. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving in a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. Have you guys ever told a ridiculous lie? Like, maybe you were trying to get away with something. Maybe you're just like, I don't know why, but I'm telling this lie right now. I'm just going with it. Have you ever lied about anything just truly ridiculous? What do you lie about? My weight. Your weight. <laughs> what else? Anything? Maybe it's just me. Like, when I was a kid, I don't have a middle name. And so I told everyone my middle name. You're the same? Same white, man. Man, I knew we were brothers. Um, <laughs> So no middle name, and so I told everyone in school my middle name was Xavier, like Professor X from the X-Men. I was like, I'm the same as him. My, my name is Xavier. And then when I was in high school, my family moved from Nashville to Knoxville, and I was like, I'm gonna reinvent myself. So I talked for a whole year with a British accent. I was like, hello, my name is Alex. And people were like, where's your son from? And my parents were like, I don't know, but we want to send him back, you know? <laughs> I just sometimes have told ridiculous lies. Maybe you told a lie and you got caught and it ruined everything. Or maybe you told the truth and it cost you everything. Over the last few weeks, we've been digging into Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is one of the most dense sections of Jesus' teachings where he outlines what it looks like to live and love like he did. To be a student of his way of life, or as the Bible uses the language, a disciple. An apprentice of his way of life. I think Jesus lived the greatest human life of anyone who has ever lived, and he invites us to become his students, to make him king, and enjoy the abundant life of him ruling and reigning, and us living under his rule and reign by living and loving like he did. Now this week we're talking about being honest, about keeping our promises, not making uh, grandiose promises and not keeping them just to impress people. For the student of Jesus' way of life, being uh, truthful, being trustworthy, isn't just optional, it is essential. And we're in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start reading in verse 31. Jesus says, It's also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said to our ancestors, you must not break an oath, you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil. Now, it might seem weird to combine these two sections, one about divorce, one about taking oaths, swearing things, and saying, essentially, people in Jesus' day would say, like, let Jerusalem crumble if I am lying right now. And they'd look, the city didn't crumble, so you just got to take my word. Or they'd say, like, may God turn my hair white if I'm lying right now. And they're like, my hair is the same color, so you got to believe what I'm saying. And they'd manipulate people this way. 
Now, these are actually, I think, um, two ideas that are intrinsically linked. A marriage is about making an oath, and a divorce means that someone in that party broke. Now, before we talk about divorce, let me just say, when we talk about an issue like this, we need to remember that there are people in the room who have actually experienced this. There are real people who have suffered and struggled behind any issue that we talk about. And sometimes in church, we talk about an issue, and we're just like, like it's almost like a theory in a classroom, and we don't recognize that it has a real impact on people's lives. For many of you, divorce has been a reality. It's been a living hell, a living nightmare you had to navigate your life through. Now, we're not going to do a deep dive into what Jesus teaches about divorce and the restrictions he puts on it versus the Apostle Paul, who later on says, you know what, you can also be divorced for these reasons as well. And he adds on this. Um, if you want to talk to me about that, we can talk about this separately. But the one thing I do want to mention is that marriage and divorce work very differently today than they did in Jesus' day. And so we can't just quickly pull a passage out of, or a verse out of this passage and be like, look, this is how it is. Because marriage and divorce look differently today than they did in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, women could rarely get a divorce from their husbands. They could. It, was, it happened occasionally, but it was very costly and very hard, and it usually left them destitute. Most of the time, it was men divorcing women flippantly and on a whim, and that is what Jesus is talking about. Women in Jesus' day were treated like possessions and tossed aside quickly. Divorce was as common in Jesus' day as changing your robe. If you were disappointed in your wife in any way, you just go out and get you. So Jesus' statement here is not to make us feel guilty for our own shattered marriages, but to protect and honor the women in his male-dominated society. Now, in Jesus' day, because the men did everything legally, they would give a woman a certificate of divorce. They assumed that they were right with God because they did things but what Jesus is saying is they didn't take seriously what they had promised. And just because they did it legally, when they flippantly dismissed people, they were actually breaking God's true heart behind his command. Now, in Jesus' day, there were two major rabbis. And this comes into all of Jesus' teachings, but it's kind of behind-the-scenes fact. You have to study history or study uh, Jewish history especially to know this. But in Jesus' day, there were two major schools of thought, two rabbis who had kind of established ways of looking at the Old Testament. And you see Jesus' teachings butt up against their teachings all the time. There was Hillel and Shammai. Now, Shammai was the conservative. He tended to take a very strict view of the Torah, the Old Testament. Hillel was progressive, and he introduced all kinds of modern interpretations of the Torah. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were always trying to figure out what camp he was in. Are you a Shammai guy? Are you a Galel guy? Are you conservative? Are you progressive? And sometimes he would side with one, sometimes he would side with the others, sometimes he would go in a completely different direction. Jesus was too conservative for the conservatives, he was too progressive for the progressives. No one could figure out where he was. But on this topic of divorce, he sided closer to Shammai, the conservative, than Galel. Now, Galel, and you can read about this if you read Jewish history. He said that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. He literally lists this in his teachings. He says, if you find a wife more beautiful, divorce the one you have. If she burns the food or does not have the food ready for you when you get home, divorce her. If she disappoints you in any way, you can divorce her. So the men in Jesus' day were chronic divorcers. Oaths were cheap. 
There was something to be said in the moment to get what you want, and they never took into consideration how they impacted people. Oaths were to be taken and tossed aside as soon as it was needed. And so when Jesus expounded on this teaching on divorce in Matthew 19, his disciples were shocked. They were like, so if I can't get divorced for any reason, I shouldn't even get married. If I'm going to be locked into this marriage forever, I don't even want to be married. And you see that in Matthew 19, 10, the disciples said to him, if this is really the situation between a husband and wife, it's better for us just not to marry. This was such the culture in Jesus' day. So in short, Jesus is saying that people shouldn't be tossed aside like they don't matter because relationships matter. That's at the heart of all his teachings about living and loving like he does. People matter. Relationships matter. When we make an oath, Christian, a student of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, someone trying to live and love like Jesus should be expected to keep it because our words hold weight. People should be able to trust what we say. The disciple of Jesus should practice radical truth. Now, uh, I think that many times Christians have become masters of saying what's expected of us and not doing anything. I think many times our churches have trained us to have the right answers without taking the right actions. Jesus wants followers who follow through on what they said they would do. Jesus loved people enough to have hard conversations with them, tell them the truth when it wasn't pretty or easy or comfortable. To say that we believe Jesus is our Lord and Master, but to fail to act like he did towards other people is to make ourselves liars. 1 John 4 20 says that, if you claim to love God, yet you hate your brother or sister, you're a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister who they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And I think in a lot of ways, we've become experts at saying one thing and then not practicing it and in, in essentiality being liars. We lie when we say one thing, but our actions don't follow our lips. Let me give you a classic example where I fail, okay? I'll say, I'll pray for you. That's a pastory thing to do, right? Like, I'll pray for you. And then I walk away from that, and I completely forget to ever pray for them. I didn't intend for it to be alive, but it became alive. Maybe someone asked, did I do a good job? And we protect their feelings instead of pushing them to become their best. Or perhaps a classic example, does this outfit make me look fat? And, you know, we just leave that on. <laughs> true honesty should be presented in love. Because true honesty wants what is best for others and won't settle for anything else. See, sometimes I'm really good at being nice because being honest would involve sharing a hard truth and I'd rather not have to do that. I'd rather avoid anything uncomfortable like that. Honesty many times is uncomfortable, it's difficult, it's hard, but it is the way of living and loving like Jesus. Honesty doesn't run from hard truths or hard conversation. Honesty always runs towards the elephant in the room. My tendency is to run away from the elephant in the room and try to avoid the issue and hope it just fixes itself. But Jesus always got to the heart of the issue. And if I'm going to be a student of his way of life, if I truly believe that his way is the best way of living, I need to live that same way. I need to run towards the issue and confront it honestly. The people of Jesus should be a community of radical truth tellers. I believe the more that we lie, the more casual we become with it the more likely we are to accept lies as truth. Neuroscientists at the University College of London conducted experiments around lying. They hooked up all these 
uh, sensors to a person's head so they could see what was lighting up in their brain. And they noticed that when a person told a lie, there was increased activity in the amygdala. However, as they continued to lie, this activity lessened and lessened until it became virtually non-existent. Dr. Neil Garrett, one of the leading scientists in the studies, theorized this, that our amygdala signals our brain when an immoral act is being committed, but with repeated lying, this response becomes more dull and dull and dull until ultimately it is non-existent. And no longer are we triggered when we lie or triggered when we recognize a lie. In short, lying, failing to keep our words, saying one thing and doing another, speaking quickly with no intention of following through, actually positions us to be more easily lied to in the future. Lying causes us to become chronic liars, which makes us easily lied to. Uh, I love J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. I was the nerd who read Lord of the Rings before it was cool, before there were movies, you know? And nobody knew what it was, but I would quote all these weird things, and people were like, you're just a weird kid, you know? And I was. Uh, but Eomer, the writer of Rohan, has this great line when he encounters Aragorn and uh, the hobbits for the first time in Ghibli, in Legolas, rather. Um, he says, because our people do not lie, we can easily spot truth from fiction. I can't help but wonder if in our world of fake news and conspiracy theories that surf online, if this is not a result of us becoming so used to easy lies that we've become numb to recognize true things from false things. Now, as I prepared and thought about this, all of these, by the way, all these Sermon on the Mount messages have been brutal to prepare because everyone I look at, I'm like, I say I'm a student of Jesus, but man, I have a lot of work to do to live and love like him. I've said I believe the right things, but I've been really bad about practicing the things I say I believe. But as I prepared and thought about this one, I considered how often I post something on a whim without thinking about the ramifications of whether or not it is true. I'll get on Twitter and I'm like, here's an idea, and I'll just throw it out there into the world, you know, for my three followers or whatever. But I don't think about the fact that, is this truly true? Have I really thought about it? Have I really been certain that this is true? For the disciple of Jesus to post or repost something, we are putting the weight of our character behind it. And often I do this without thinking very deeply about whether what I'm saying or sharing is true. I share it because I like it, not because I've thoroughly researched it. Bob Goff, does anybody know him? He's the author of Love Does and Everybody Always. He's like a living embodiment of joy, if you've ever seen a video of him. He's just like so happy. I'm like, he's gotta be on drugs or something, right? Nobody can be that happy. But um, he has this great practice I heard about in a podcast regarding social media. He says, before he posts something, when he wants to post something, he sends it to himself in an email and he sits and thinks on it for 24 hours before posting it. And he asks himself 24 hours later, is this really true? Is this really kind? Imagine how different our world would look if everyone practiced the same simple practice. Now, the Bible calls the enemy, the Satan, Satan's a title, not a name, the father of lies. Satan means the accuser. Um, it calls the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, guides us into all truth. When we lie, Jesus is saying, you're not being a student of Jesus. You're being a student of the Satan. 
When we tell the truth, we're reflecting Yahweh. When we tell a lie, we're reflecting the devil. In John 8, 44, Jesus, you're calling out to the religious leader, says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In John 16, 13, to contrast that, he says, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. See, I think we constantly have two voices whispering into our heads and into our hearts. The Satan and the Spirit. I don't think it's like the classic cartoon with the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. You know, you've seen that, right, in cartoon, and the devil's like, you should burn this place down, and the angel's like, you should save those orphans instead, you know? I think what it's actually like is, we have one voice that is constantly whispering truth into our heart and head, and we have one voice that is constantly whispering lies into our heart and head. I think when we believe the lies, we act in selfish and destructive ways. I think when we believe the truth, we act in selfless, constructive ways. The problem is, at least for me, many times I prefer the easy lie to the hard truth. And the problem for me a lot of times is I have lied to myself so much to protect myself, I've numbed myself to spot a lie as a deception. When I hear lies like, you're worthless, no one loves you, you'll never have what you long for, Alex, you're going to mess it up. I have told myself so many lies that I can't recognize those for what they are. I was in a room with hundreds of church planters, guys starting churches and um, the speaker up front, he, he kicked off his uh, session with this. He asked this question. He says, how many of you have heard a voice in your head, head telling you, you are a failure? And every hand in the room went up. And I was like, we've all heard the same lie. The more honest we are with others, I think the less we will make excuses, the more we trust um, that as students of Jesus, with him as our king, we don't have to lie to protect ourselves because he is our protector. The more we do that, the more we practice the truth, the more easily we will shake off the lies that we hear from the enemy, the lies of our bullies, and the lies of our own hearts and insecurities. See, there's a vulnerability in true honesty, but that vulnerability actually leads to the ability to resist being lied to. There's a vulnerability that we can only practice if we live safely in the kingdom of God. If Jesus says, you are right with me and you are right with my father because of my death, my burial, and resurrection. And so you don't have to lie to protect yourself because your reputation isn't on the line because my reputation is what? Oh, is the only thing that matters. The more we lie, the less firm grasp we have on what is real and what is not. What matters and what doesn't. We become so numb to lying that often we don't even notice how often we live. So what do we do? What do we take away from Number one, I think that we need to repent. And repent just means to change direction. To call out the direction we're heading is not going to get us where we want to go. We all want to live an abundant, full, meaningful life. And lying won't get us there. Sometimes in a moment we think, if I lie right now, this will get me what I want, which, will, which is good. But ultimately, it doesn't get us to our destination that we want. An abundant, meaningful, full 
left. We change direction. We call out the easy lies and our cultural culture of casual deception for what it is. It's evil and destructive and wrong. And we replace lies with truth. And that means when we have a moment where we're like, it'd be so convenient to say a lie right now to protect these people's feelings or to protect my reputation or to make me look better. Instead, you just start sharing embarrassing truths. And uh, it really does help you as if you share honestly, not only do people begin to say, man, there's something weird and different about that person, but it begins to protect your heart and mind against life. Choose your words carefully. Be slow to speak and quick to listen, James 119 says. Don't be in a hurry to talk. I feel like the longer I talk, the better chance I have of saying something that's not true. Where there is an abundance of words, there will be sin, Proverbs 10:19 says. If you only say what is absolutely true, or if you just slow down and carefully talk, you can choose more carefully to share things that are true and honest. Many times I get nervous, I'm an introvert, and so the more I start talking, I just start saying things, and I'm like, I have no idea what I'm talking about anymore or what I'm doing. I'm just out of control. Like, I just need to back into a corner and be quiet for a little while. Finally, practice a hard truth. We build our spiritual muscles with spiritual practice. We want to get better about living and loving like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit as a student of Jesus. As we submit to his role and reign, we begin to practice his way of life. Maybe a good step is to choose one hard truth, one hard conversation this week, and do it. Don't run away from it. Face it. Have it. Be honest. Maybe it's an honest conversation with your spouse or with your partner, with a friend, with somebody at work. It'll make you fortified to resist lies when you um, take steps to be more truthful. Wash your mind in the truth of scripture. So many times when I hear the lies of the devil or my own insecurity in my heart and mind, I remind myself of what Jesus has said in scripture. He says, you are loved. You are mine. I call you son and I call you mine. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge to live and love like you do. Help us to be honest, not only with ourselves, but with the people around us. I believe that people, if they see the people who claim to be students of Jesus living and loving like Jesus, they'll be curious about who you are and the life that you offer everyone. We pray that you will be glorified. Help us to be honest. Give us supernatural strength to approach the lies and tear them down in our own hearts and to share with everyone around us honestly. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.
Thank you. 